Oh, Abba Father, we thank you for a beautiful morning. Thank you that your grace and your mercy, that they are new every morning. Lord, that you have beautiful gifts that you want to give us this bright, brisk morning. And Lord, I just pray that our hearts and our heads and all of uh, all of our being would be open to receive whatever you have to give today. Lord, soften our hearts. Lord, I pray that everything that would uh, work to distract us from the voice of your Holy Spirit would be silenced right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, that we would hear you loud and clear. Lord, I do not ask that anyone in this room hears Josh. I'm not interested in them hearing from me or Lord, I want the, I want all of us, me especially, to hear from you this morning. Come, speak loudly, speak uh, with your prophetic, creative voice that calls something out of nothing. I pray the same authority that called light out of out of nothing would call righteousness out of us. Lord, I pray that the same authority that that spoke and mountains rose up out of the sea. Lord, I pray that that voice, your voice, Creator God, would speak in this room today through your word, and that we would be formed to be more like you. Lord, I ask that the word of God, the living and active Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword that can penetrate and pierce between soul and spirit. I ask that that word would be uh, moving around in this room, at work in the heart of every person in this room. And Lord, I just, Lord, do miracles today. I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right. It is my it is my 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 hope that we can finish the first chapter of Romans today. I highly doubt it's going to happen. Because these last few verses of this chapter, there is some deep stuff in these in these verses. And as I was as I was studying them out, <laughs> I was thinking. I don't even know. I mean, there's no way we're going to get to the end, but that's what I would like to <coughs> like to do. I have a little bit of a cold. Please forgive me. I have a, kind of a chest cold right now. So, what's that? You know, I'm not freaking out. Dang it. Well, you're going to have to deal with it anyway. All right, we're going to start at verse uh, 16. <coughs> a verse a lot of us know uh, very well. I mean, we've we've all heard this verse. Um, there's been songs written that say, sing this verse uh, word for word, but I want to dig down deep into this verse because there's a reason why this is a well-known verse. This is a powerful, powerful statement that the Apostle Paul is making, and I want to spend some time in it. So it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by 
faith. I'm going to read it again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right, let's jump into this thing. This is hardcore. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. Why would he be ashamed of the gospel? You know, we're coming from what we just talked about before this. He said, I've been wanting to come to you, Romans. I've been wanting to come to the church. I've been wanting to come. And this is the reason why he's been wanting to come, because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Because that's what he wants to do. He wants to carry his... Remember how we talked last week about how every person carries a grace on their life? Paul knew that the greatest grace, the, the grace that he carried better than any other, was to give the gospel... To give the, the obedience that comes from faith, that's the way he describes it earlier. The righteous shall live by faith. This thing of as we believe, as faith is active in our hearts, the Holy Spirit is active inside of us, and he makes and it makes us more like God, saving us from our own sin. This understanding of the gospel, he carried it better than anyone in history, I believe. Anyone in history, that is why God chose him to write books like this, this specific book. This book has changed the world over and over again, and it has changed the church over and over again. And it was statements like this one that we're reading right now that that have constantly been used by God to lever the church out of its position of works-based righteousness over and over and over again. Because the human heart always tries to go back to the place where we're earning the favor of God. We always try and head back there. It's just the way the human heart goes. And when enough people forget a verse, forget this verse, and forget the truth that lies in this verse and the grace that Paul carried, then the whole church ends up flopping over onto this side where it is all about my righteousness, about my self-righteousness, about works-based righteousness, and we forget the truth that you cannot earn God's favor. Cannot. God forgives you because of what Jesus did, not because of what you did. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He had suffered so much. The Apostle Paul was stoned for the gospel. He received the 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 uh, the same lashing that Jesus received. Anybody remember the Passion of the Christ? Okay, Paul went through that twice. The same lashing that Jesus received, two times. It's kind of impossible to believe, isn't it? I mean, when you see how destroyed Jesus was after, Paul went through it two different times in his life. He was shipwrecked. He was thrown in prison. He was beaten. He was cast out of cities. It, he all of it because he was not ashamed of the gospel. Not only that, but he left his culture and everything he held dear. Paul had spent his entire life up until the time Jesus knocked him off that donkey on the road to Damascus. Paul had spent every ounce of energy, every last dollar his entire life 
it, uh, pouring into this Jewish culture that this this reality of workspace righteousness that the whole Jewish culture was was founded upon. Paul had spent his entire life just dumping his entire life into this reality, and in one moment, boom, the gospel takes all of that away from him, and he says, yep, that's right, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The world hates the gospel, and the Jews hated the gospel. But Paul says, and he's not afraid to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, it says this, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolish of God, foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, the gospel has this beautiful thing built into it. <coughs> the gospel refuses to glorify man. It refuses to glorify man. It declares all humanity wrong, incorrect, broken, and deserving of hell. That's what the gospel says. The gospel says, guess what? Nobody's right. You're all wrong. Everybody's wrong. This is the truth. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. No man shall be glorified through it. Only God shall be glorified through it. And because of that, every culture that has encountered the gospel has been offended by it. Now, depending on how your culture is built. See, this is what the gospel does. It's this beautiful thing. The gospel comes along and all of us, and it just, with one, one stroke, it just reveals the primary idol of any culture. Okay? And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He says, when it comes to the Jews, it just, right there, instantly, the Jews have to stumble over Christ crucified. Because the, the primary idol of the Jewish culture was personal pride in their own self-righteousness. And here is a man who was crucified like a thief next to a thief on the cross. He died a sinner's death. And they can't, they can't look at that. The Jews worship personal pride and personal power. They worship, they worship the, the one who looks big enough and strong enough to lead them. You know, that's who the Jews worship. So when they see a crucified God, they say, no, 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 that can't be right. That idea of God himself coming, becoming a man and dying on the cross, the Jewish, the Jewish culture says immediately, without even thinking about it, reacts to that idea. What? No, no, this is not, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Why? Because they have been calling themselves God's people. They have been building up their own personal pride around the fact that we were chosen by God. All of these generations, and now God says, I'm... Now God allows himself to be killed? Excuse me? No. God God has to be victorious. God can't die. God can't God can't be hurt. God can't God can't be crushed. No, that's it's not okay. And the Jewish culture immediately their their idol is revealed by the gospel. No, we can't the gospel is offensive to them because of that. Well, the gospel is offensive to the Greeks for a whole other reason, because the primary idol of the Greek culture is wisdom. 
<coughs> and wait a minute, wait a minute. Your God died? That's foolishness. That's foolishness. I can't follow a religion that's based on foolishness. I can't follow a religion that, that I, I, I can't do that. And that's what the gospel does to every single culture in history. The gospel comes in and reveals to everyone exactly what the primary idol of the culture is because Jesus points right at it and says, in order to follow me, you have to give up that. For the Jews, it was their own self-righteousness. Jesus said, you have to repent of your sin, which you're pretty good at that. That's fine. The Jews were like, that's right, yes, we are not a sinful people. And Jesus looks at him and says, well, you have to repent of your self-righteousness also. And that made the Jewish people go, but I've worked my whole life to build this self-righteous list of things that make me better than everyone else. <laughs> and Jesus says, yeah, and you have to nail it to the cross or else you can't receive what I'm giving. And there were many, many Jews that said, I can't do that. And Jesus said, then you can't follow me. What do you think is the primary idol of American culture? Hmm? That, yeah, that's probably a pretty good one. Okay. Yes. I think that's it. And I think I think all of those that you mentioned other than self, I think all of those are are just pointing towards the bigger idol of self. Yeah. Money, entitlement, all of that. It's pointing towards this one thing. The primary idol of American society is self-esteem. It is. It's what it's what it is. It is I have worth and value. Wrong. Okay? Trash. No, it's correct. But the problem is the problem is Okay, here's the problem. You do have worth and value. That's the truth. It wouldn't be so attractive if it wasn't partially true. But the problem is God has more worth and value. And when our primary statement of what is important in the world is, I have worth and value, to stand next to anything else that says that it has more worth and value than I do is instantly offensive to me. I, I am unable, when I am spending all my energy propping up my own understanding of my own worth and value, and then something else comes along and says, I need you to value this more than you value yourself. That's offensive to us. That's offensive to us. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says, you deserve nothing. I want to give you everything, but you deserve nothing. Your salvation, even your salvation, is about his worth and not yours. That is a deeply offensive statement to make to even Christians in this culture. Do you know how many times, I mean, I, 
I've had people really mad at me because I start saying, no, God, the worth of God is greater than the worth of man. And when I begin to push that out there, that the worth of the glory of God is more important, is higher, is greater than the worth and the glory of humankind, all of a sudden, all of a sudden I've got a bunch of people mad at me in the room. I remember when this first kind of smashed into this class two years ago. <coughs> I don't think maybe some of you were in this room when that happened. We came to this screeching halt where I had at least six people in the room that were so mad at me that they were like, it was angry tears that were coming down their face like, you can't say that to me. You don't understand. And I'm going, I'm sorry, but it's the truth. The worth of God is greater than the worth of man. That's just the way it is. <laughs> people were deeply moved. We had an hour long conversation about how this isn't fair. <laughs> Wasn't that last year? Well, no, it was two years ago. No, that was last year that like six people were. Well, we we had we had that conversation in a much last year. We had the same conversation because I have that conversation every year. But it, last year it was parceled out over about five or six weeks. Um, uh, but two years ago it all happened in one day, and I will never forget it. It was insane. <laughs> It was just, it was nuts. But, it, you know. Do you still have it on your podcast? <clears throat> oh, yeah. I didn't put most of it on the podcast. And the reason I didn't is because there was some really deep personal stuff that came out um, from some of the folks. And I didn't want that out there on the internet because, I mean, it was some really harsh stuff. It was some really hard stuff. Because as soon as we begin to understand this idea, that God's worth is greater than ours, all of a sudden, all of the work that we've done to, to prop up our own worth begins to look worthless. We feel stolen from. When the truth is this, it is a beautiful, amazing, wonderful thing that God's worth is greater than ours. You need to be deeply glad that God's worth is greater than yours. Because now God, who is worth far more than any human will ever be, looks at us and says, I deem you worthy. And out of his worth, our true worth is established. But until God's worth is established, we have nothing. We have nothing. We'll talk about that a lot more in this book, trust me. This is what the gospel always does. The gospel, when it is truly presented, offends every human culture. Because Jesus is not willing to leave you with the current with the set of ideas that the world has given you. You can't stay there. You have to put down the very thing <laughs> that you have built your identity upon has to be crucified with Christ so that your identity can be built on your relationship with Jesus. Do you see how offensive that is? If Jesus wasn't who Jesus is, this would be the most horrible offensive thing anybody 
could ever say to anyone else. Everything you've built your identity on is worthless. He is the only worthy thing. If that wasn't actually true, and it is actually true, by the way, if that wasn't actually true, then I would be the biggest jerk on the planet for saying it. But Jesus said it. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That is an incredibly egotistical statement. Any other human on the planet. Jesus told people, if you love your family more than you love me, then you don't love me at all. I mean, think about it. Imagine anybody saying that to you. Anyone. I don't care who they are. Imagine somebody coming up to you and saying, Preston, if you love your family more than you love me, then you're going to hell. <laughs> okay. I didn't think about it that way. Now I got you. <coughs> Jesus is the only person that can say that. And he did. All these people that say, well, I think Jesus was just a really nice guy, and I think maybe we should just try and live life the way that he did. And, and he's a real role model, but I don't think he's God. Well, you haven't read Jesus then. Because Jesus said things like that. If you're not for me, you're against me. Okay? I mean, Jesus was not, Jesus didn't let people sit on the fence. He wasn't like, you know what, just whatever you, it's fine. Whatever you believe is okay. We're all going to be fine. God loves everybody. It's going to be okay. Jesus, you know, one of my favorite preachers used to say, Jesus was not the Diet Coke drinking product in his hair hippie that everybody thinks he was. <laughs> okay. Jesus Jesus stood in front of the world and said, I am the only way. It's me or nothing. Period. That is an incredibly offensive statement to our culture today. Is it not? Deeply offensive. I love Jesus. So when the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he is saying, I am not ashamed of the most offensive statement in the history of human culture. I'm not ashamed of it. Because if you believe this statement to be, if you don't believe it to be true, it is the most offensive statement in human, in human culture ever. If you do believe it to be true, it is the most wonderful statement ever made in the history of the world. But Paul was living in a world where 99.9 .9 repeating people around him did not believe the statement that he was making and were ready to kill him for making it. And yet he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If you are preaching the gospel, you're going to offend somebody. need to know that. You're going to offend the sinner who doesn't believe they need to repent. 
and you're going to offend the righteous person who doesn't believe they need to repent. I should say righteous person should be in air quotes. The self-righteous person that doesn't believe they need to repent. You're going to make both of them angry. I mean, look at Jesus' life. Now, I will say this. This is the crazy part of the gospel, is that when it's preached correctly, the sinner will take, up, take it up much more quickly than the righteous person. We know that because we see that in Jesus' life. Everywhere that Jesus went, the self-righteous people were really mad at him, and the sinners either just ignored him or became his most amazed followers. Anyway, but here's why he's not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God. The gospel, the good news, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel has everything in it to accomplish all that God wants to accomplish in your human life. This seemingly simple thing called the good news, changes everything. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5 says, The gospel is mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. Jeremiah 23, 29, he says, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intention of the heart. The word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a force. It is powerful. And it will not, will not just sit idle and not do anything. The gospel draws a line. And you're on one side or the other, but you cannot sit in the middle. It doesn't work. It will never work. And if you're on the, the right side of the gospel, where you believe that the gospel is true, that belief will change everything about you from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. Now, is that going to happen instantly? that change? Some of it will. I have seen people radically altered the minute they actually believe this thing to be true. All of a sudden, there are huge things about who they were just gone. But that's not most of how this works. Most of how this thing called the gospel works is this long process of God sifting through the thoughts and ideas and beliefs that exist inside your heart and inside your mind and finding those things that don't fit with the gospel and pulling them out, ripping them out of all the places where they are connected to you, pulling out the foundation stones underneath which you've built your entire life and placing whole new ideas in there, in the ruins. The gospel comes in and destroys what you've built on lies and begin and gives you a real truth that's unshakable that you will build on for the rest of your life. 
It is a torturous, difficult, painful, beautiful, glorious, wonderful process that you're in the middle of right this moment. But it starts by believing the gospel. <coughs> this is from a commentary. It says, The gospel is certainly news, but it is more than information. It has an inherent power. The gospel is not advice to people suggesting that they lift themselves. It is power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say that the gospel brings power, but that it is power and God's power at that. This is why I love the gospel of Jesus Christ and why I'm always going back to it. We've got to understand that the gospel is not the 101 of Christianity. It's not like, oh, I understand that. Now I can move on to something more important. Wrong. The gospel is the beginning, the middle, and the end. The gospel is the way that all of who you are is saved. Everything in you. Every part of you, every dimension of you needs to be complete, to, to be pushed through the gospel and resurrected by it. Every thought process, every value system, every, every relationship, every, you name it. The gospel has to be applied and, 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 <laughs> think of the gospel as like a food processor and every part of your life just gets put in and pureed by the gospel because that's what happens okay <coughs> and sometimes it really freaking hurts sometimes the gospel will just because the gospel's constantly showing you idols that you didn't know you had all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute. This is way more important to me than it should be. Crap! And Jesus once again comes along and says, it's me or that. What are you going to do? And so we have to die to yet something else. We have to just let it go. Ah, here, take it. And Jesus is like, I love you so much. I have something so much better than this to give you. But I have to take this away first. Have you guys ever heard the story about the little girl and the fake pearl necklace? Have you ever heard that story? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, it's grueling. It's just terrible. This, this little girl was given a, a, a pearl necklace by her daddy, but it was fake. You know, it was like these costume jewelry and she loved it and she wore it every single day. And then after a little bit, her dad started asking her for it. How much do you love me? I love you more than anything. Will you give me your necklace? No, Daddy. It's my necklace. But finally, after a long time, she decided to give him the fake pearl necklace, and that's when he pulled the real pearl necklace out of his pocket and gave it to her because she needed to be able to give up the fake thing that she loved so much to receive the real thing that had actual value. Yeah, right. <laughs> Told you it's... It. It's that, that story is killer. It just kills me. But it's so true. How many false things that we have poured our life into do we hold on to with everything inside of us? And Jesus is going, I have something so much better to give you, something so much more real, 
something so much more valuable than this thing that you are holding on to with everything you are, but you have to give that to me first. The Lord showed me one time this picture. I had been praying for a deeper intimacy with him. Praying, asking the Lord, Lord, I want deeper intimacy with you. I want to know your heart. And then the Lord encountered me in the prayer room one morning and he showed me this picture of a bride who had wrapped her, like just her fists were completely wrapped up in her veil and she would not allow anyone to move, remove it from her face. And her fingers, her fingernails had started coming off because she was holding onto it so hard. And her, and there was the veil, the bottom of the veil was just bloody with, with, how hard she's been holding on to this when the groom's trying to remove the veil from her face because he wants to give her a kiss. But she is so frightened that if he sees who she really is, that he'll reject her. And he said to me, that's you. And that's why I haven't been able to answer your call for intimacy because you're so afraid that when I see who you really are, that I will reject you. He said, let me peel your fingers away from the veil. Because what I want is to give you the kiss you're asking for. You just won't let me. That's what the gospel does. Let's bow our heads for a second. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit.
I see you. Like a child with a splinter in your finger that won't let your mom touch it or see it or do anything to it because you're afraid it's going to hurt. Like a wounded animal that lashes out at the vet that's trying to save its life. You're saying, Jesus, this hurts too much. You're not allowed to have it. The Lord says, what you're holding is death. Until you give it to me, it cannot be resurrected. What you're holding is, is pain. And unless you give it to me, I can never make it worth it. I would give worth to your scars. I would give worth to your pain. But you refuse to let me heal you. And yeah, the healing process means that I'm going to have to cut it open again. That bone has set incorrectly and I'm going to have to break it again. It will not be easy. But at the end of this process, you will be stronger than you've ever been. And you'll trust me more than you ever have. You've held on to that thing so long that your fingers are frozen to it. Let me come. Let me slowly pull your fingers away from that thing and lift this burden from you. All you have to do is say yes. Just say yes, and I'll do the rest.
Amen. If that's you and you need to just kind of stay in a place with Jesus, you are welcome to do that. The gospel does not teach us how to live. The gospel is the power to make us live. To make us free. And to give us back to ourselves. said, it's the power of God for salvation. To be saved means to be saved from ourselves, to be rescued from the death that is at work in us, destroying us, stealing us from our creator, and from all the destiny that he has for us. And we are saved unto eternal life. There's a reason we are saved. I have run into so many believers over the years who they honestly thought that the reason that they were saved was so they could spread the gospel. <clears throat> it's not true. God isn't saving you for what you can do for him. He's saving you because he wants you. He wants you. I had this conversation with a young man I'm discipling recently. <clears throat> and God was putting some calling into his life. Some, he was, God was calling him to some amazing things. That God was setting some vision for his future in his life, and he had gotten so wrapped up in that vision of that future that that's what his relationship with God was about, was about this future of ministry. And it... He was telling me that his that his like his relationship with God had gone really dry and really dead and his in and in his heart he had started feeling really dull. And I started talking to him about it and realized that it's because he had stopped serving Jesus and started serving his future ministry. That his relationship with Jesus himself, the one who put this vision of future ministry in his heart, that this future ministry had become an idol all by itself. And he, and now his worship of Jesus was being impeded. His relationship with Jesus Christ was, was blocked by his vision of his future ministry. And I know what that's like because I lived in that place myself. And God had to, it became so entrenched in me that God had to take me away from ministry and get me to the place where I was honestly, I honestly believed that I would never do ministry again. And I was okay with it because I was thoroughly in love with Jesus and my relationship with him was doing well. And I, and if I never, ever did ministry again, I was fine with it. It took him a year. That took a year to get me to that place. To extract the idol from my heart took him a year of process. And then immediately after, almost immediately after, 
that year of process, he actually gave me a full-time ministry job. I had not had one up to that time. But he couldn't have given it to me if he hadn't taken it from me first. Because it had become an idol. Don't worship ministry. Or the idea of ministry Worship Jesus and let ministry just be an outflow of that. We were saved for him. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the only way we can access and experience the power of God to save us, and that's faith. You cannot earn it. You can't work hard enough to get it. You can't be involved in enough ministry to get it. You can't read enough of the Bible to get it. The only way to receive the power of God to save you from your own death, your own sin, is by believing that it's true, is by faith. And that is true about every victory you will ever have in your life. It will come by grace, which means for free, Through faith. Is there a sin that is like dominating you? That is like, I cannot defeat this? Your only way out of that sin is by grace through faith. That's it. You cannot work hard enough. You can't torture yourself enough to to deliver yourself of that habit. You can't smack your own wrist long enough. You bad Christian, bad Christian. That doesn't work. That's the law. It doesn't work. It's never worked. It will never work. The only way to defeat sin is to honestly believe in the depths of who you are, that you have been set free, that you have died to that sin, and now walk it. And I know you're saying to me, I don't know how to do that. Well, you know what? Peter didn't know how to walk in the water either. It is not possible. That's the point. Jesus has to do it in and through you, or else it will not happen. The only time that Peter was actually successful at walking on the water was when he had Jesus' arm wrapped around him. That should tell you something. We've been called to do the impossible. Ministry is impossible. It is impossible. Getting people saved is impossible. It is a miracle. The only person that can do it is Jesus. By the power of his Holy Spirit and the power of his word, he is the only one that can do it. You can't save people. And you can't change people. But Jesus can. And if you will make yourself available to him, he'll use you to do it. Everything Jesus has called us to do is an impossibility. Just get that in your head right now. And then you'll never try and do anything without God's help. Because you can't. What did Jesus say? I'm the vine, you're the branches. You cannot bear fruit 
without me. You can't do nothing without me, Jesus said. He was dead serious. That's how this works. And the gospel only works this way. And we've got to get it through our thick skulls. It's very hard to do. We would like to have a practical plan for the salvation of our souls. If you do one, two, and three, then it's done. Just pray this prayer, read this devotional, blah, blah, blah. No. Salvation is a mystery. It is a miracle. It is beyond human capability. And the only way to do it is by trusting God, by leaning on him and saying, God, I can't do this. You have to do it in me. And then God says, I will. I am. Here we go. But you can't. Now, I will say this. You can cooperate with God working in you, and you can fight against God working in you. That's the limit of your ability in this situation. Okay? You can cooperate with God. That's when the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey, you might want to do this. Oh, okay, I'm going to do that. When the Holy Spirit says, hey, you haven't read your Bible lately, and then you, op- you, know, you open up God's word, spending time in prayer, spending time in worship, spending time around people who are in the same walk of faith as you, all of these things, the church calls them means of grace because it's exactly what they are. These are ways to cooperate with the work of God on the inside of you. And you need to cooperate with him because God doesn't want robots. He wants you choosing this. Every day, over and over, constantly choosing to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. That's what he wants. And faith actually demands it. Book of James says, faith without works is dead, Right? That what James is saying is, if you don't cooperate with what God wants to do in your life, then it will not happen. Unless you add, you know, a, a, uh, an activation to your faith, nothing is going to take place. Why do we put our hands on people when we pray for them? Have you ever thought about that? Do you think that there's some kind of like electrical connection Like, I have to take, there's something in me that I have to put my hand on them, and then it's going to go from me to them because I'm touching them. Does that make sense? Come on, people, wake up. Does that make sense? We actually talked about this. Uh, I forget where we were. Okay. Anyways, uh... The guy explained it kind of as a, he said it's not necessarily anything that we do, it's just, I forget where he said that the Bible talks about it. Uh, There's a couple places. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Something that is in us or whatever, I mean, of course it's Jesus or whatever, like maybe, uh, never mind. I remember hearing it, but I can't, I can't express it in words right now. What it is, okay, that, um, when we have people like, Push your hands towards them right now. Stretch your hands towards them. When Benny Hinn would have people put their hands on the TV screen. Um, oh when gosh. when you anoint people with oil. 
None of those activities are magical. Okay? We got to get that. We need to understand none of those. There's nothing magical about any of those activities. Like, if I'm still praying for you, but I'm not reaching my hand toward you. I mean, come on. Is it really? Is there a difference? The truth is, no. Except that this is an activation of our faith. Okay. I know it's. I know it's a physical. I know. I, and you're thinking it's kind of silly. No, it's not. Because what you are doing is you are physically enacting what you're. What's you are representing outwardly what's going on inwardly, and because of that, power is released from God to them, not from you. You ain't got nothing. You're a bag of bones and meat. You got nothing. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and the Holy Spirit says, ooh, faith, and he begins to move. Now, I have seen the, some of the weirdest faith activations in the world. I saw one lady who ran out of an oil started going like this. Jesus did that, though. He spit in the dirt and put it on people's eyes. Okay? I had a handkerchief that I used to pray people with. Okay? But that was that was straight out of the Bible too. The Apostle Paul took his handkerchief and sent it with somebody. Was there anything magical on the handkerchief? No. It was an activation of faith. That's all that it was. And you know, I have told you guys the golf ball story too, right? The the golf ball story? I don't remember the no. golf ball story. Explain. I don't even heard that. <laughs> I swear you've heard this story. I don't know. You have to start telling that. I all remember right. it. Explain. So it was uh, a friend of mine was going away uh, to the Brownsville School of Ministry in Brownsville, Florida, and and he came over. We were prayer partners, and we were at my house, and we were praying together for him. There were certain specific things that needed to fall into place for him to be able to go and to do this thing. And so he had come over so that I could pray with him about these specific things, okay? So we're standing in my uh, living room, and there's nobody else in the house, and, and he and I were praying, and, uh, and, and, and he had asked me to pray specifically about a couple things. And so I put my hand on his shoulder and I'm praying for him. And, and I felt like there was just nothing was happening. You ever felt that? Like, yeah. like, yeah. okay, <laughs> nobody's listening. Nothing's going on. <laughs> my friend was just kind of sitting there going, yes, Lord, you know? And I'm like, man, nothing's happening. I mean, absolutely nothing. And I'm, I'm going, Holy Spirit, what is, what is, what's, what is it? What What's going on? You know, I mean, you told him to come over here so I could pray for him about this, and now nothing's happening. I don't understand. What What is it? And then this is what, and I'm looking around the room, and I'm just kind of like, man, what's going on? You know how you do that kind of stuff? You're just like, hmm, you know? And then I see a golf ball on the floor. And the Holy Spirit says, pick up that golf ball and put it on your friend. <laughs> no. Dead serious. That'd be the oddest thing. Yes, Lord. And I was like, "Should I golf like, ball on him?" Exactly. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. This is the stupid. No, I am not going to do that. And so I'm having this inner war between me and God. And I'm like, "No, I'm not a golf ball." He's like, "Do it." <laughs> so I finally just kind of like, well, he's not looking. I kind of like reach down. And I like, I hide it in my hand so, so he can't see it. And I just put my fist on him like this. And the Holy Spirit said, no, put the golf ball on your bread. And I was just like, this is so stupid. I was so embarrassed, right? So I finally just went, ah, fine. And I actually did it. I put the, 
The moment that golf ball touched him, he goes, ugh, and like bends over and falls on the ground. I went. <laughs> and I looked at the golf ball. I was like, this golf ball is going everywhere with me. <laughs> Next week in church, I will, golf I will be the, the golf ball evangelist. I'm going to be like, just send me $100 and I'll send you this anointed golf ball. Right? <laughs> and the Holy Spirit said, now go take that golf ball and throw it in the trash. And I went, what? What? I don't understand this. And the Holy Spirit said, it was not about the golf ball. It was about you doing what I tell you to do. He said, when your obedience meets my anointing, miracles happen. And I went, Oh, <laughs> but I have told that story many times. You tell me you've never heard that story. I, I, I have told the story a bunch of times because I will never forget it because the Lord taught me this lesson that it was that activation of faith. Okay. It was stupid, but I was doing what the Lord told me to do. And I, and God did something. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> I don't remember what okay. <laughs> I don't remember. Might have been Slazinger. I don't remember what it was. It was white. <laughs> I don't remember. And I don't even know that my friend ever knew that I used a golf ball to pray for him. It doesn't matter. That wasn't the point. <laughs> hey, by the way, uh, I used a golf ball to pray for you all those years ago. He actually goes to this church. <laughs> he does. <laughs> but it's about, it's about an activation of faith. It's putting works to faith. Sometimes it's something stupid like that. Sometimes it's something much bigger. Sometimes it's giving. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's prayer. Sometimes it's going. Sometimes it's living your entire life in a certain way. Okay? The book of Hebrews talks about the heroes of faith who lived their life looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. Most of them never saw it. But because of their lifestyle of faith acted out, we have received the blessing that they worked for all their lives, that they never saw with their eyes. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about Eve, who was told by God that one of her seed would crush the head of the serpent. She honestly believed that her firstborn son was the one that Jesus, that God was talking about. She was wrong. It was much, much further down the road, obviously. She never saw, but she never stopped believing that from her, would come one who would defeat the serpent that stole everything from them. And her faith hung over the human race for the next few thousand years until Jesus was born as a fulfillment of the faith of Adam and Eve. <clears throat> I don't know how we got to talking about faith. Oh yeah, I do, never mind. <laughs> <coughs> All right, so let me see what time it is. Okay. Stop it. So are there any questions about this before? Because we're switching gears when we move to verse uh, 18.
Okay, cool. All right, verse 18. Now remember, the Apostle Paul says, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The righteous man shall live by faith. Okay? Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed. Whenever you see the word therefore or for or whatever, a connecting word, you need to go back and read what it said before that because there's a reason why he's making this statement. Pay attention. Okay? His statement about the gospel being, about him not being ashamed of the gospel and the gospel being the power of God for the salvation of all who believes is why he is making this next statement. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un, all ungodliness and unrighteousness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He talked about the gospel, the power of God for salvation. Now he's going to begin to talk about the anti-gospel. Okay? The spirit of this age that is at work all over the world, and there are far more people caught up in the anti-gospel than there will ever be caught up in the gospel. But this is what we're up against. And this is what the Apostle Paul was up against. And this is the force that is at work in your life trying to convince you to not believe what the gospel says is true. Okay? It's the anti-gospel. It's the... uh, the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about the wrath of God. Something, some things we need to understand about the wrath of God. Number one, it is real. We don't like talking about the wrath of God. It's an offensive thing. It isn't. We think of it as an ugly thing. I will say this to you: it is not ugly. It is beautiful. God can never not act like himself. Therefore, the wrath of God is loving. Think about that for a minute. The wrath of God, if it's God's, it must be loving. It must be motivated by love. It must be saturated by love because God is love. So if the wrath of God is God's, then it's loving. I'm sure some of you are like starting to think about like Sodom and Gomorrah. How was that loving? It was. How is all the stuff we read about in the book of Revelation? What? How is that love? It's love. Because it's God's. You look confused, Gracie. Well, it's just that it doesn't make sense. Like, just that part, just because he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because they were evil. Yep. And, like, yeah, I understand, like, God's wrath is love. Like, I I understand that, mm-hmm. but, like, that. But, like, I don't, if he destroyed everything and made everybody dead, like. Do you know why mean, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Because they were evil. No. Everybody's evil. The whole world is evil. The reason God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah is because they were unrepentant. There ain't nobody on the world that's not evil. You're evil. I'm evil. 
you don't see God pouring out his wrath on me right now because there's a difference. I'm living a lifestyle of repentance. And I don't say that as, as a boast. I shouldn't have to repent. I should. I am an evil person. That's why I have to live a lifestyle of repentance. But if you go back and look, the reason that God poured out his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah was because of their unrepentance. Yeah. Something that gets me is like, okay, he poured out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah because of their unrepentance. Yeah. But he loved them so much that he killed them. They were unrepentant. So it doesn't matter how much he loves them. They would have never, ever received anything from him. So now, because of their unrepentance, and God is the only one who can see the human heart, he's the only one. And we don't know how many people God, like, inspired to get out of there before it happened. I mean, we know Lot and his family. But there were years before leading up to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that God was waiting on repentance from Sodom and Gomorrah. And God poured out his wrath on those cities, and it was a loving act. Maybe not loving specifically toward the unrepentant people in that city, but to the region around it that was going to be destroyed by their unrepentance. That was love. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. We have to understand that God is the only one who can see the human heart. He's the only one fit to judge. And when he judges, he does it with a broken heart. That's what we've got to get about God's wrath. God is never like really excited about about killing people. The Bible says that his that it is his desire that none should perish, but that all should come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants, but it's not going to happen. Because in his love he gave us the choice. Yeah. Good. <laughs> This is like a weird question to ask, but and maybe it's like an easy answer, but I really don't know. Did like was God ever brokenhearted that Lucifer fell? I think he was. I think he is. Does God ever hate? Like I know, like God is love, and yes, you can love and hate at the same time. If he's like a God of love, then what does he hate? He hates everything that tries that that is stealing that which he loves from him. So does he hate Satan? Does he love Satan? Like, that's my biggest, like... It is simultaneously both. He loves Satan as a creation of his. That he, that God had beautiful plans and intention for. He lavished his love on Satan when he created him. Then his name was Lucifer, not Satan. But... It's true. Son of the morning. That's what his name means. He was the brightest, most beautiful angel in heaven, and God loved him. God lavished love on him. But Satan turned and walked away, and God had given him that choice. So the wrath of God is released against him. I know, it's a complicated thing. Okay? Wait till we get to talk about the sovereignty of God. That's going to be 10 times as complicated because we have to understand that God who knows everything about the future and sees every decision, every wrong decision, every hurtful, painful, terrible decision we will ever make is still going to, even though he knows we're going to make them, he's still going to allow us to make them 
because we have that choice to make. Right? Even if we choose to not receive grace from him, he will allow us to make that choice. That's what love is. And because he loves, he sets us free. And because he loves, he lets our own choices destroy us. Which is what happens with sin. Now, people love to draw this line between God causing bad things to happen to people and God allowing bad things to happen to people. But is there really a line when God is in control of everything? Is there a difference? Because on some level in God, he is saying yes. <laughs> but then where do you find the spectrum where people are like, well, Satan's doing this. And then you have the other spectrum where, well, God is allowing this. So Both of those are true. <laughs> but so like is it just like with Job's situation where Satan came to God and asked to like test him and God's like yeah but don't hurt him is that what God sets limits on what Satan can do always yes so it's not about like it's more of like our reaction to it like how we what we choose to believe all about our perspective if I honestly believe that God completely loves me, that God wants the best for me, and that because I have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I am on my way to heaven, then every single thing that happens to me is a gift that's been allowed by God, yes, or caused by him. What is there a difference? I don't think there. I, I, I think that is an awfully fine line. I don't think that. I mean, how can how, there isn't? We have to be able to say that God allows horrible things to happen, and God is good at the same time. We have to be able to say that. Otherwise, we have to throw away the omnipotence and the omniscience of God. We have to just say that's the only choice. We either have to believe that God doesn't know what's coming and God can't do anything to stop it, or we have to believe that God does know what's coming and he could stop it, but he doesn't because he is good, because he loves us, because he knows more than we do. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> 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 okay, but like my question is if God, so God knows everything, yeah. yes, yes, that's a fact. Yes. But... If he knew that Lucifer would become this awful thing, why did he like give him so much power? Let's not be self-righteous here. God knew every sin you would ever commit, and yet he created you. Ooh. <laughs> Are you better than Satan? Really? No. <laughs> I mean, I didn't try to take over the world. Yet. <laughs> and yet you are. Because our sin is the exact same as that of Satan's, isn't it? What is Satan's sin? Satan's sin is exalting himself over God. And what have we done? But if Satan did it, it wasn't a thing, then 
the serpent wouldn't be like. <laughs> so, isn't it so if God would have just not done this in the first place, we'd all have avoided. I get, I know exactly what you're saying, but at the same, but it's a circular argument because the truth is, sin would have probably come into the world some other way. I mean, we can't know what would have happened if God just hadn't created Lucifer. We we don't. What I'm saying is this, is that God knew, God knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew every possible future. And he has, through his sovereignty, set a path for every human being, every, every worm, every bacterium, every virus that has ever existed. He has set every single detail of all of creation in specific order that, at the same time, he will receive the maximum amount of glory and the most amount of people will be saved at the end of the, at the, end of the day. That is what God has done. That's the glory of the gospel. And what we are walking through and every decision we make is a part of God's incredible, unbelievably detailed plan for all of the universe to glorify himself maximally and to save the most amount of people because that's how God glorifies himself. Okay? So (coughs) that is... It should make us look at God and be like, wow, because his brain is so much bigger than ours. Yes, it is nosebleed time. <laughs> so wait, if, okay, this is a weird question, but if, like, if Satan or Lucifer repented and came back to Jesus, would something else have to happen or like, would humanity not be, have to be made like that? Lucifer cannot repent. Why? Because Jesus didn't die for him. Ben Ben Bowers said it yesterday. He was like, when Lucifer fell, one third of the angels went with him, and yet God did nothing. And then he gave his son for us. One third of the angels and Lucifer, the one that was like most beautiful in the kingdom of heaven or whatever he was, all of that, and God did nothing about it. Yet when sin came and everything, God made this plan to yeah. murder his son and yeah. forgive us of our sin. Right. Like that's, what, 7 billion people in the world? And then so on and so forth from whatever it is. When, when Jesus died till now, all those people have been forgiven, including those. And before people. Jesus died. It's ah, crazy. Oh my God! So do you think people went to hell before Jesus and then came back? From well, from what we can tell, from what we can tell, <laughs> like not from what we can tell, okay? There's that 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 uh, Hades, okay, which is where uh, anyone that is bound for hell goes now, okay. Which is not the same thing as Gehenna, which is the lake of fire, which is where everyone will go after the great white throne of judgment. Yeah. Okay. That there was a place in Hades that wasn't quite as bad as the rest of Hades, and that the people who were living their life in faith of what God was going to do in provision for their sins went to, and we call it Abraham's Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom because... That's that's what Jesus referred to it as in in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. But he said that in between 
this place of paradise and Hades, there was a great gulf fixed that you can't go from one to the other. The Bible says that Jesus went into hell and preached the gospel to the people who were there. 8,003 days? Yes, it was. Jesus went to hell for you. We've got to get that through our thick skulls. Jesus took all of our sins where they belonged. He took them to hell. And then he got raised from the dead and left our sins there. The Bible says that he took captivity captive and led many captives in his train back to heaven when he went back to see his father. So that's so Jesus died on the cross. He went to hell. That's where he went. He did whatever he did there. He preached he preached the good news. In hell, which is kind of crazy. And then God raised him from the dead. And Jesus, on the power of his own perfect sacrifice, walked out of hell, bringing those that had believed in God before he died with him out. And they are in heaven now and will be resurrected. Okay, so anybody from Old Testament period, all of the people... Some of them were Jews, some of them weren't Jews, some of them were just anybody that believed that God was going to provide, that believed the promise that God gave to Eve, that there was a Savior coming. That's what, okay, we talk about activation of faith. That's what the sacrifices were. Jesus said, the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin, period. So when they were killing the bulls and goats, and the, that blood was not forgiving them. That was an activation of their faith in what God was going to do to provide for their sin. And when Jesus actually did it, then all that faith just... Is that like literally like... <clears throat> <everything for> me. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. Well, we don't know that it was little, but so yeah. Is, <laughs> so, is every, every sin that I've ever committed and will commit... Yeah. Is already is already there if I yes. like as long as it all died like with you. All of that sin died with you when you died with Jesus on the cross. Before you were born. Yes. And so is it if I don't repent of those sins, do they come out of hell and onto my life? That's not how it works. You repented of sin, yeah. all of sin, yeah. when you belong, when you became a part of Christ. Do not let anyone tell you that if you have sinned a sin and then never said, Jesus, forgive me, that you're not forgiven. That's stupid. When you received Christ, you died to sin. Yeah. It is now, all of that is all is dead. You are dead to sin. Does it also say you're forgiven before you even asked? Sin does not, it doesn't say that. Does it? No. no. Maybe I just heard that from someone. So then. Maybe teaching. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm asking a lot of questions. No, it's okay. fine. So then, if all of our sins are in hell, and they're died, and we receive yeah. Jesus, yeah. why do we need to repent if our sins are already down, like, in hell? Like, Repentance now is who we are. It's our lifestyle. It's our whole universe. Because you are still, are you a resurrected spirit? Are you a resurrected body right now? No, you're not. So your salvation is in process. 
It's an assured process. God's not going to, you can't lose it by accidentally, oops, I didn't repent about it. But your salvation is in process. So repentance is every moment of your life. Martin Luther said it. All life is repentance. It's the truth. Okay, but I mean, I still really, okay, but my still, still my question is, if all of our sins are in hell, and we are here, Uh and we receive Jesus, and it doesn't matter, why should we repent if it doesn't matter? That's what I'm asking. Like, if all of our sins are already paid for, why should we repent? Well, your sins are paid for, but that doesn't mean that you're done. Your sins are forgiven. That's great. That's awesome. That's beautiful. But you still believe things that aren't true about God. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Repentance now is not so much about us avoiding hell. That's, that, that question's been answered. You're not going to hell. Done. Okay? That question's been answered. Your sin already went to hell. Okay? So you don't have to. Because you're connected to Christ Jesus. So resurrection is at work in you. But there is still death. There is still lie. There's still falsehood. We're we're still flesh. So (laughs) sin is still at work in your physical body because you haven't, the resurrection of Jesus has not been completely realized in you yet. But it is at work right now. So we're in this kind of middle place where we are already saved, but we're not completely saved. So is our repentance an act of, of course, like it's an act Our of repent faith? is activation of faith. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is what we are doing. When we repent now, what we are doing is cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us to make us more like Jesus. Because at the end of the day, when our bodies are fully resurrected, we will be exactly like him. But that's not happened yet. I'm one for a hundred. <laughs> but that was good you're, you're getting the idea the resurrection is at work in you now and all of our life now is this place repentance and activation of faith is, it's all the same thing it's putting down one mindset and putting on another That's because that's what repentance means repentance means to turn completely around to change the way we think the apostle Paul said it in Romans chapter 12 be transformed by the renewing of your mind that's what we're doing. Okay, our spirits have been resurrected. We are a threefold being. You all know this about yourself. You are spirit, soul, and body. Okay? Your spirit is that part of you that is, that is most made in the image of God. It is, it is the very center of our beings, and it is what makes us human. Okay? Your spirit was dead the moment you were conceived because of original sin. It's really, this really ugly thing. So your spirit was dead. At salvation... The Holy Spirit came, connected up, like intertwined itself with our spirit and said, clear, and brought our spirit back from the dead. It was, our spirit was resurrected in that moment. And from that moment until this, out from the connection between our spirit and the Holy Spirit, the life of God has been pouring in. But it has to go through, okay, here's your spirit, here's your soul, and here's your body. Okay, does this make sense? It's like a little... Nested Russian dolls. Okay, you're the, the innermost doll is, is your spirit. Okay, the innermost doll is your spirit. That's your spirit. Okay, that's resurrection has fully been accomplished in your spirit. 
by the influence of the Holy Spirit upon your spirit. You have a brand new, fully resurrected spirit. Is that exciting or what? And that is the part of you that is sitting at the right hand of God right now in this moment. It is your spirit. Okay? That's exciting. You exist in the fourth dimension, seated at the right hand of God in this moment. That's why your prayers have power. More power than even the angelic realm. Because the angels don't sit at the right hand of God. You have been unified with Christ. (laughs) Anyway. All right. Now, that next layer around your spirit is your mind, your will, and your emotions. That's, That's what your soul is made up of. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. Okay? And don't think that you can really separate between your body and your soul. They're so intricately connected, it's impossible. That's why your chemical balances mess with your emotions and your mind and your will because they're just, there's no way. I mean, the only one that can tell the difference between what's going on soulishly and what's going on physically, I mean, is God and it's very, anyway. (coughs) The life of God is pouring out from the Holy Spirit on the inside of you into your soul right now. Renewing your mind, aligning your emotions with the emotions of God, and fixing your will so that you are your will is aligned with God's will for your life. That's what's going on. That's why we read the Bible. The Bible is one of the ways that God is influencing our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions, turning them to make them more like him. And some at the, the longer we're living that way, the more the resurrection life of God is changing our soul, forming it to look just like Jesus. And the more our soul is formed to look like Jesus, the more resurrection life pours through our soul into our physical beings. And there will be a day, a singular day, where God just expedites the process and says, okay, we're done. I'm just, all of you full resurrection happens now. And that's when it's going to happen. Okay. Many of us, our bodies will have completely decayed away at that point. And we will just be a spirit and soul floating around in heaven, waiting to receive our body back. Because you were not meant to live without a physical body. You are a human being. We're going to have the same body? No. No, we'll have a brand new body. A completely renewed resurrected body there will be things about it that are like connected to what our physical body was like here now but the the apostle paul compares it like an acorn to an oak tree is the amount of difference there's very something very much the same and there's something very much different at the same time it's the same dna completely different manifestations of the thing so does that mean like yes no there was still the bible says that there will still be cultures and languages and nations in heaven otherwise john wouldn't have been able to see that there was people from every culture language and nation if they didn't look like they were from their cultures languages and nations. i'm I'm down to stay brown (laughs) go ahead what's up I'm down to stay brown. <laughs> I have to make a t-shirt. 
Anyway, um, so as our physical bodies, we'll have like traits like eye color, facial, like that I kind don't of thing. Is that, is that going to be like a spirit and soul the apostles, thing? The Apostle Paul says that we cannot know yet what we will be like. No, I'm saying like spirit and soul wise, like in heaven. Yeah. Will we still have like oh, will you be what you? we look like? Yeah. Okay, cool. You'll be you. So does my spirit look like me? In my I don't know. Maybe. So. I don't really know. How you think, is it anything like I, the, the, the The important part is you will know even as you're known. So people will know who you are. It's not like they're going to be like, who's that? Oh, my gosh, that's Preston. I had no idea. But they're going to know you. In fact, they'll know you fully. Bigard said he's hyped to stay white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm down to stay brown. I'm hyped to stay white. <laughs> There's so many things that I could say right now, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm back to be black. Jesus, please. Resurrected bodies, yes. Continue the resurrection process in our souls. Uh, All right. So... Let's get back to this. We're never going to, we're going to, yeah, we're only going to get maybe through the end of verse 19 here. But so <clears throat> the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So the wrath of God must be loving. Here's something else we need to understand about the wrath of God. It is not God just getting so ticked off that he loses control and just smashes everything. I think that's what we think of as the wrath of God. Like God's just like, that's it. You know, like, you know, I mean, it's like a Chris Farley rant. Like, he just, he just, just destroys everything. You know, just, just comes walking in and blows up crap. You know, that, that is not the wrath of God because that's not God. Understand, God cannot lose control of himself and he never does not act like himself. So whatever the wrath of God is, it is pre-planned. It is full, God fully in control of himself. And the thing that we need to see, the thing that we need to understand is that the wrath of God is his active opposition to all that is stealing you and me from loving him more. His pre-planned active opposition to remove evil from the earth. That is what the wrath of God looks like. The most powerful demonstration of the wrath of God in the history of the world and that will ever happen is not Sodom and Gomorrah. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because <coughs> what God did through the cross of Jesus Christ was he surgically, powerfully, removed the influence of evil from the most amount of creation that he possibly could in one moment. And that was by putting it upon himself. That is what the wrath of God looks like. God paying for our sins. Every other demonstration of the wrath of God that happens only happens because those people have not given themselves connected themselves to the primary demonstration of God's wrath, which is the cross. Sin must be punished. 
Evil must be eradicated. We have two choices. We can go to the cross and have our evil eradicated there. Or our evil can be eradicated with us. We can be eradicated with our evil. God would much rather that we went to him and allowed the cross to eradicate evil from us. That's what he wants. That's what he calls us to. But because he loves us, he gives us the opportunity to say, no, I want to pay for my own sin. Well, you're an idiot. God will allow you to do that. There is not... But, but sin, has a con- sin has consequence. And that is separation from God. That's why Jesus was saying, why have you forsaken me? Because it was in that moment that our sins were upon him. (coughs) Since we first bit the apple, or whatever fruit it was, don't know what it was it was the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil we don't know what it was they they believe there's there are cultures that said it was the pomegranate ancient jewish cultures uh, ancient jewish scholars say that it was a grape or a pear and it was an apple or a pear in my mind it took a bite of a grape the whole thing. <laughs> they had grapes that were huge. Okay. They had oh, grapes right? that they still do. But like, remember when Joshua and them walked out of, walked, you know, you know, they walked out of. <laughs> now I want like a huge grape. Something big that they did that Do you remember when 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 Joshua and Caleb came out of the out of the the promised land? They gone. They were carrying a bunch of grapes on a pole. Dude. That's how awesome. big it was. Okay, so I'm not trying grapes like that. Exactly. Bro. GMOs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now the problem is the grapes we have now are the GMOs. It's sin and the destruction of the world has modified and destroyed the original intent of the grape. And now so we have I, these puny little... So I can blame sin for my lack of big grapes? Yes. <laughs> we can honestly... That just made me more angry. We can so honestly... Well, I'm, I'm glad I found something. <laughs> the suffering of all mankind. Billions of human beings burning in eternal but torment forever. Big grapes. But big grapes. <laughs> I'm just glad we found yes. your niche. Okay. Remember when I said that the gospel reveals the idol of every culture? <laughs> We've just found out. The grape is the idol. Good lord. All right. Okay, so verse 19. Now, this is dealing with another question that we have to understand. Okay? Because. Check this out. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Every human being who has ever lived knows about God. Knows enough about God to seek him out and find him. 
Okay, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. There's always, always the question, what about the guy on the, for, on the island that you know, nobody could ever get to them with the gospel? That is a really valid and important question. This is the answer. They know enough to know. God has made it evident within them. You guys got to understand this, okay? We, every human being uh, knows about God. Within them, something about our humanness um, is the stamp of God's own nature upon us has made it evident to us who he is and what he wants. So at the end of the day, with only our own human self-existence, God is able to look at every human that has ever existed, whether they ever heard one Bible story, whether they ever heard one story about Jesus. He is just in looking at them and saying, you knew who I was and you knew what I wanted. I built it into your frame and you still said no to me and I'm righteous judging you. That's why I say to you that we deserve nothing but hell, because that's the truth. We have rebelled against the knowledge God built into our very DNA. We were created. Remember what God said when he created human beings. What did he say? I want to make someone like me. The very first thing that God said about the human being was that they would be like him. That is the very essence of our nature. That is who we are. That is our DNA. And every culture in the world worships something. <coughs> every culture in the world understands that there is something bigger, greater, more powerful than them. Every single one. And every culture in the world understands that there is a moral code by which humans should live their lives. And most cultures in the world agree on the larger points of that moral code. That is without anyone teaching the Bible to them, they agree. Why? Because it's built into who we are as human beings. We know who God is. We know that he exists. We know that we are we were born to worship him, and we know that we were born to obey his ways. We know all of that from the moment we were born, and we ignore it, and therefore God is righteous in judging us. Does this make sense? So it's like, a, is there a way of like divine intervention in that situation? What do you mean? Since, since we have that built into us, is there a way that they could necessarily worshiping God but didn't know the story of Jesus? I don't know, maybe. It's entirely possible. Just put that thought out there. I, no, I, I mean, there have been stories that we have heard about like whole, whole African villages where 
they've all had like the same dream of this man in sparkling white clothes coming to them and saying, I'm the creator of the world. I'm the savior of the world. There's a man coming who's going to teach you about me. Wait, you know, you'll see him when he walks into the, and then like three days later, a missionary shows up in their thing and they're like, are you the one that's coming to tell us about Jesus? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> he makes that guy's yeah. job easy. Here. Talk about easy. Yeah. I'm like Jesus, could you just do that all the time? Exactly. Just go go ahead and like you know, just tell just tell them you know. There's there's a bunch of stories recently. There's this massive revival going on in Iran and in like the Middle East, in the midst of ISIS and every all this other craziness. And there's all these stories that I've heard from like over and over of Islamic people who have dreams of Jesus telling them, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life." This, this that you followed your whole life has been incorrect. You need to find a Christian to tell you about me so that you can receive me. I mean, like, that's insane. I mean, that's, that's incredible. God knows what he's doing, and God cares more about people than we do. At the end of the day, we're going to look at the decisions that God makes about where everyone's going to go and where they're not going to go, and we're going to be like, that makes sense. We're going to nod and we're going to thank him and we're going to say, your ways are righteous and true. Jesus, you are way better at this than we ever understood. We are going to, that's what we're going to say. We're going to say, wow, I'm so glad we worship you. We can trust him to care more about humanity than we do. All right, that's where we're going to stop for today. Any further questions comments we've got like 10 minutes left but the next thing i want to get into is like way too big for us to cover in 10 minutes okay so the first day we talked about <coughs> first one so we had we talked about paul's introduction and how we talked about how he was obsessed with the gospel and ever since then uh i've been like super kind of like confused i guess because i've heard the gospel a thousand times and i kept asking god why i wasn't obsessed with it mm. like I didn't really think a lot about it. Like I knew it, I knew, I thought I knew it, but like it wasn't really real to me, I guess. And so today, for like the first time ever, I feel like I fully understand it. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I remember when I when I became obsessed with the gospel, because I grew up my whole life. I, oh, I know the gospel. It's you know this, this, this. You know, I could easily tell you. I could have encapsulated the gospel for you. But when you start looking at the cosmic massive, blindingly glorious realities that are the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like, this is the best thing ever. Yeah, now I get it. Now <laughs> I get it. You can't stop thinking about it. You can't stop talking about it. You can't, it just becomes this like thing. It's like, do you know the, do you know about the gospel? And they're like, yes, I know the gospel. Yeah, yeah, but, but do you know? Like, do you know? I mean, like, the gospel is like way bigger. than It's not just fire insurance. It's so much more than, oh, now I'm not going to hell. Whoopity-doo. You know, I mean, I think that's how most of the church feels about the gospel, honestly. Like, look, I'm glad I'm not going to hell, but can we think about normal things now? Are you kidding me? It's because they don't understand. A lot of people think the gospel is like Christian kindergarten. Once you've got it, then now we're going to move on to other things, like the important things like spiritual gifts or... Whatever else. It makes it so much easier to worship God because you want to instead of yeah. feeling like you have to. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
That's what the gospel does. It changes your heart. Not just this. Changes this. That's why it's amazing. (laughs) Because it, it sets you on fire on the inside and all of a sudden it's like, I really love you, Jesus! And that's what I want more than anything for all of you. I'm actually, tomorrow night, I'm preaching at this, like, thing in, I don't even know what, it's called Survivor Week. It's been going on all week, and they asked me to come, and, and, and tonight's the last night, they asked me to come and lead worship and preach. And so that's tomorrow night, and I'm, I'm going to do that. And basically, the Lord told me, I just want you to get up and just be like, I really love Jesus, for like 45 minutes. That's all he wants me to do. And I was like, I can do that. I'm going to have a lot of fun with that like that's like my primary gift (laughs) so (laughs) be praying for me that I'm able to do that really well but I mean (coughs) this is the best news the world has ever heard and you're beginning to understand why and here's the reality of it the more you think about it the more amazing it becomes the more you explore it, the more, the more it's like, no way. I mean, we've just barely, we've just barely caught a whiff of what it means to be seated at the right hand of God, hidden with Christ in God. I am dirt. And what the gospel is so good at is is just destroying our self worth. <laughs> And investing our worth in Jesus, which lifts our worth far beyond anything that we could ever like say, I'm a person and I'm important. No, no, you are beloved of Jesus. That's why you're important. And all of a sudden everything changes because then it becomes, then my worth becomes about his worth. And I'm not constantly like stamping my foot, demanding people (laughs) pay attention to how worthy I am. No. Jesus has poured out his own blood to save me from my sin, and he has hidden me in Christ with God forever. My eternal life from this point until forever is always getting better forever and ever. My experience of God is only going to expand for the rest of eternity, and I will find him maximally satisfying every minute of every day for the rest of my life, and that's called righteousness. God saved you so that you could enjoy him forever. (laughs) Woo! This is good news! God's highest purpose for my life is to learn to be loved by him more every day for the rest of my life. And since you have eternal life. Exactly. So is it, I don't mean to be like weird, but is it like, is it safe to say that God's selfish in certain ways like that? Like, I don't mean to say it in a bad way, (laughs) but like he saved us so we can worship him forever. And he saved it, saved us and did all this stuff for his glory. And he definitely deserves it. I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm just saying is it like in the in the smallest way human could possibly understand it, it would be selfishness, I think. Yeah. Yeah. God is the only being in the universe for whom 
Self-exaltation is the most loving act possible. Yeah. Guy just looks at himself in the mirror and goes, hey. <laughs> yeah. But it's not like that because God is a community. Yeah. So God the Father is looking at God the Son going. And God the Son's looking at God the Spirit going. And they're, 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 their joy in one another is simultaneously self-exalting and selfless. Explain that. I really want to, so, so God never had, he never me, had a beginning, he never had an end. So how many, how many years or whatever did God we, just look at himself and go. Didn't we last week, didn't we talk about, didn't we talk about like me showing up at my house with roses and talking to my wife? Didn't we talk about that last week? Okay. Because let me ask, this is how love works. Okay. Love works like this. I love you by enjoying you. Right? Yeah. So isn't that kind of selfish? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. You said this like on a podcast too. I gotta, so I gotta write that down. You said that God has a reason to be selfish because he's not broken. Because we're broken and we do things out of our selfish ambition. And you're absolutely God right. God isn't broken, so he has every right to God's, be God has every right to be selfish, but at the same... And that's and I totally stand by that statement. That is absolutely true. But, if that, but that's... God is the only person in all of creation for whom loving himself is the most loving thing he could do for everyone else because he has given himself to us. So in exalting himself, he is exalting the worth of the gift he gave to you, which is himself. That's kind of boggling my mind for the next it's going to boggle our mind for the next eternity. Wow. But what I want, what, what, what we need to get past is the boggling and just get into the enjoying because he gets the glory, but we get the joy because God loves us by enjoying us forever. And we love God back by enjoying him forever. So why do we care whether it makes sense or not? I mean, honestly, Get, get your brain out of the way and just go, I love being loved by you and I love loving you. This is the greatest thing ever. I'm going to do this forever, more and more and more forever. It's never going to get boring or it's, and it's never going to end. That's, that's just crazy for me. God saying to like a person saying, I love you means that he enjoys us. And yeah. that's crazy. <laughs> if you guys see me like, in a corner somewhere, you know what I'm thinking about. Good mission accomplished. That's what I I I I I will have done my job as a teacher if I have you rocking back and forth in the fetal position with a gigantic smile on your face, going, "God is so no, I can't do it." Mission accomplished, because that means that God went over and above anything I could have said, and He showed you what I was talking about Himself. It's good stuff. It's so good. We love the gospel, Jesus. Thank you. And because we're so deeply satisfied in him, we don't want anything else. So sin's not a problem, because why do I want that? When I've got this, why do I want that? I'm going to read this quote to you from C.S. Lewis, one of my all-time favorite quotes for anything ever. It's from, a, it's from a sermon that he wrote called The Weight of Glory. This is what he says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy has been offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. <laughs> I don't even know. Just, wow. Let's keep piling on, Josh. <laughs> Infinite joy has been offered to us. And we want to do things that make us feel kind of good for about a half a second. We're stupid. (laughs) Father, I thank you for revelation. Jesus, I... Would you... Give us the gift of loving you more every day, of enjoying you more every day for the rest of our lives so that nothing we could lose on this earth makes any difference to us, so that nothing that could happen to us on this planet could ever shake us or make us afraid because nothing can take you from us. And you're all we really want. And Lord, will you expand that joy into the way that we feel about each other? That we would understand that we have come, we have, we have been created to learn to be loved by you and out of that to love you in return and out of that to love all of those beautiful ones that you love and to be loved by them as we all learn together how to enjoy you more every day. You are infinitely satisfying. Lord, I pray that every other lover would be wrecked in our hearts, that we would... (laughs) Be so besotted by our love for you. So, so tunnel visioned on our absolute enjoyment of all that you are. That every other thing we've ever claimed to love would just feel like worthlessness and emptiness. And that all of us would live our lives shouting at the top of our lungs every day to every person that we meet how delicious you are. And inviting everybody to the table to taste you and see that you are good. In Jesus' name.